preaching of God's Word is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there at verses 4 and 5. 1 Corinthians 5, and there at verses 4 and 5. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my Spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The Scriptures make plain that Christ is a king, that He's not an elected ruler, that He is the supreme and the ultimate Lord of the church. This, of course, is confirmed in many passages. It's also confirmed in the way that His people are spoken of. We are His subjects, His servants, and other such things. Though there are many privileges that we are called His brethren and even His spouse, yet this never is relinquished, that He is the King of kings, Lord of lords, and we are those, though much honored by Him, who even in heaven, receiving crowns, will throw it beneath His feet and acknowledge that He is the supreme and only Lord. We, by His mercy, are citizens of His kingdom. And so we have, of course, various places of Scripture that stand out in our thoughts that confirm this. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Christ as King is setting forth, as it were, clear exposition of expectations in His kingdom to His disciples and other such places as well. And we ought to confirm and acknowledge that this relationship is one great blessing and privilege to us. Never has there been so glorious a King of so honored and privileged a kingdom as Christ is to the church and as the church is to Christ. And so to be counted as citizens of this kingdom is the greatest privilege that one can have. So you sing in the Psalms on occasion that when God takes up the role of His people, He'll count that this man born was there. This is the great delight and privilege. We delight to say, my birthright by God's grace is in the kingdom of heavenly Zion. Christ is my King. Never is there such a head of a nation or an empire as Christ is to the church. Never so many riches, so much provision, so much love, so much kindness, so much tenderness and service from the King as the church receives from Christ. Whereas this is true, that which is related is true. The calling and the responsibility of the citizens is never so high as it is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what's in back of the expression of Paul when he says, opening up this case, he says, there's such fornication among you that is not so much as named among the Gentiles. He's pointing out the shameful fact of the toleration in Christ's kingdom of unspeakable wickedness. And so what is it that is to be done? What should happen when a scandal breaks forth in this kingdom? Well, you'll notice that Paul moves quite quickly. And he testifies in verse 4, 
that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Christ, through Paul, in God's word here, says when such things are witnessed and evident, there is the need to raise the highest censure against the offender. And though it must be done orderly, as we'll see, and though it must be done compassionately, as we'll see, and though it must be done with an earnest desire for the repentance of the one brought under the censure, it is to be done with solemnity because it is a censure from heaven. This is something that churchgoers acknowledge when they are free from the, being the object of such a censure. But it is frequently the case that when the censure comes unto one caught in a scandal, that they start to use such rhetoric as, how dare you? What right do you have? This is legalism. This is a problem. You don't have the right. This is just man's voice and so on. And I'll just go to another church and they'll accept me. They'll be caring. They'll be kind. They'll be compassionate. All of which is to miss the fundamental point. Paul doesn't say, listen, in my name or in your name do this. But notice how the text begins. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Christ's censure. The censure of excommunication, as solemn as it is, and as impactful as it is among men, such that as at the end of this chapter, he says, here's how you're to live. That one who continues in such a state under that censure, verse 11, you're not to keep company with them. You're not to eat or drink with them. There is to be such a change in your relating with them that they are to be treated, as Christ says in Matthew 18, as a heathen man. And for the Jews, that was significant. You see it in Peter when he says, I've never touched any unclean thing. And the vision comes. And then he perceives that he has a right now to eat with the Gentiles. Do you see that in Acts? The Jews observed such distinction with the heathen that they would not so much as enter into their house and eat with them. That's what Christ is saying in Matthew 18. And that's what Paul's getting at here. When the censure is delivered, it changes the way we're to relate to those under that censure. And it impacts our lives and the life of the one under the censure. And it has massive impact to us so that we can be tempted to think that really all that's taking place is an earthly thing. But that's to mistake what actually is taking place. The change that is taking place is because of the voice of Christ that is resounding unto earth from heaven. The censure of excommunication is not a church's censure, properly so considered. It's not a pastor's censure. It's not a presbytery's or session's censure. It is the voice of the king, which to ignore is to bring unending shame upon oneself. Which to reject and refuse, whether by the one under censure or by others refusing to observe the censure, is to be a treasonable offense against the king. Brethren, it is a solemn thing to consider what is before us. We realize as 
Our congregation has been laboring in the Lord's providence with two who have been duly warned and admonished privately, now publicly, solemn prayer being issued unto the Lord publicly, ourselves seeking the Lord personally and privately in the throne of grace. That We come then, lest, unless the Lord should intervene, and one of them should before the censure come and give evidence of repentance, we come to administer the censure of Christ. What we see in the text is that excommunication is Christ's ordinance whereby He removes an impenitent sinner from the fellowship of His church and exposes him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. But we wish to look at this in three ways. Firstly, noting how it is a royal act. Secondly, how it is a solemn act. And thirdly, how in spite of what men and women and the world may say today, how it is a gracious act. And we must stress this, gracious in all of its severity. The grace is actually manifested in the severity. That it is not, well, let's be gracious and modify and reduce the severity. The severity is the very means by which grace is being manifested. So a royal act, a solemn act, and a gracious act. Firstly then, how it is a royal act. We see this so plainly in Paul's appeal. Paul stands as the highest officer of Christ's church. Not himself, but along with others. He's an apostle. And so he's an extraordinary officer. He's not ordinary as ministers and elders today, but he had peculiar privileges, gifts and graces that far outdo those gifts, even of the best preachers in our own era. He was an apostle, having been an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He had the gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues and miraculous works, all confirming his apostolic office and his apostolic message. And yet, though it is that he comes and says unto the church, listen, as an officer, I'm letting you know, verse 3, that if I am, if, as if I were present, I've already judged this man. But that's not the ground of his call. He rather says in verse 4, it's not in the apostle's name, it's not in my authority, in myself, it's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Christ's act. This is something that we need to see. Excommunication is ultimately the act of Christ the King. This is why if you turn to Matthew 18, a very clear passage on the same, though it deals with different circumstances, a private offense, it be, the, the scandal begins as a private offense, whereas this began as a public offense and has a different course, as it were, in some ways, different steps to take. Here, this private offense of Matthew 18, unheeded, thus bringing no repentance, results in the same censure. And so it is in verse 17 of Matthew 18, if he, that is the sinner, shall neglect to hear them, that is the church, or the, the witnesses that you bring, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Let me say one quick thing. Verse 20, though there are ways in which this confirms small gatherings for prayer and other such things, the context isn't that. The context is church discipline. And so when you see on social media, you know, two or three agree in God's name, it's going to be done and so on. You need to push yourself to say, that's actually taken out of context. What Christ is specifically talking about is the center of excommunication. And notice what he's saying. He's saying, when there is agreement in this manner that I've outlined, when the case has been tried and matters have been established and it's clear and the church is gathered and now is issuing the censure and they're in agreement over it, what is saying, what's taking place? Christ says, I am in the midst of it. It's my censure. I'm the one issuing it. And so you can understand, you know, people in all of their pride and arrogance, they get caught in sin and they say some things and say other things and do some things, do other things, but they don't really repent. And they say, well, you know, I'm going to go to a church that accepts me. Here's the fundamental problem. It's not about the church. Christ has been against you. Christ has come against you. Christ has said, I am casting you out of my kingdom. I am exposing you to Satan. It's my act. These ambassadors of mine, these stewards of the mysteries of God, have acted in accordance to my will. And so as they execute my command and my decree, make no mistake of it, it's mine. It's my act. And so go to another church if you wish, but there will be no real membership. There will be no real blessing, whatever your heart feels, until this scandal and this censure is absolved in accordance to the principles of my word. Excommunication is not the act of a minister, fundamentally. A session or a presbytery, a synod, a general assembly, a consistory, or any other such church court. Though it is administered by them, executed by them, it is first and foremost an act of Christ. And brethren, this should give us pause because not only does this have implications toward the one being excommunicated, it has implications toward us. We have no right to modify, adapt, ignore, and cast a blind eye to the censure. Unless we're willing to say, I can modify, adapt, and ignore Christ. It's a royal act of Christ. As it's a royal act, it is by the king, very much keeping in common with the various ways Christ speaks of his kingdom. It's executed upon earth by his ambassadors. And you see this throughout history. The great kings would give their decree and they would then send it to be executed by his servants. So you see this, for instance, in the Babylonian Empire. You see this in the Medes and Persians. King Ahasuerus, what does he do? He takes his ring and he gives it first to Haman. Haman does wicked things. But then he also gives it to Mordecai, who does righteous things. And what Mordecai executes is actually the king's will. This is what's going on. The king's will, discerned by the word of God, his word, is then to be carried out 
by his people. This is why Paul says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, there's the royal authority. When you're gathered together with, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such an one unto Satan. It's not just that you say, okay, Christ has done this. There is an activity of the church to be executed, but it must be in accordance to the authority of Christ and by his power. This is why in Matthew 18 again, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. There's a binding. The keys of the kingdom are given unto the officers of the church, but they're only binding insofar as they agree with the mind of the king, discerned by the word of God. And this royal act, as every royal act in any royal kingdom, is to be observed throughout the whole of his kingdom. So understand this. If you come in contact with one who has been excommunicated lawfully, you are under the royal obligation to have no fellowship with that person. They may be of a Baptist church. They may be of a Lutheran church. They may be of a broad evangelical church, a different Presbyterian church. If they stand lawfully excommunicated, it is that they stand in the capacity as is spoken of here. And we are to observe those lawful censures. In other words, the royal act is not a local matter. This has implications again to the one under the censure and implications toward other churches. And so in our day, it's not uncommon to find someone who's under censure flee to another church for some perceived refuge and say, well, this church was legalistic and they badmouth the church and they say what we really want is love and kindness and, you know, everyone sins and so forth and so on. All of those kinds of things happen. And too often, the church leaders even take the word of the one under censure as if that's the truth. They never pick up the phone. They never email. They never visit and say, listen, what's the issue with this one who says he was brought under censure? Could you imagine, for instance, one of our states having a sex offender on flee, fleeing from uh, uh, someone in a different state, and our state's authorities say, well, you know, he's now in our state, so we're not going to observe those things. Well, we have to remember, it's not just a state offense. There's a federal offense, a national offense, that is the reality of some crimes. And so it is in God's kingdom. When excommunication is issued, it's not a local issue alone. It is a royal act that has to do with the whole of His kingdom. That's why Paul says, you deliver such an one unto Satan who himself is by Paul in Ephesians called the God of this world. Not as if he's equal with the God of heaven and earth, but that he is, he's the dark one who rules the blind ones and so on. Now they're handed over. They're not handed just out of your congregation. They're actually handed out of the kingdom of Christ unto the lawless one, the wicked one. This is why you'll notice in 2 John Verse 9, in a different issue, of course, that nonetheless, John says, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. 
For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Catch that for a moment. John doesn't say, if someone from your local congregation shows up, he says, if anyone that is under this comes to you, don't let him into your house. And then you start to hear the tone of our day and the sort of undertones of our culture and say, you know, that's a little harsh and difficult. And, you know, isn't it that Christianity is the religion of love and kindness? But notice what John sees that much in the world, many in the world do not see. This one who refuses, and here he's a doctrinal heretic, this one who refuses these things is a man of evil deeds. And to support and help such a one is to make yourself a partaker of evil deeds. Would it be compassion to house a murderer who is fleeing from capture? Would it be compassionate to house a child abuser who is fleeing from capture? Would it be kindness to keep them in secret and protect them from the just laws of society? You know, in our society even, whatever its faults, that to do so is to bring yourself under the cloak of darkness and to make yourself liable to criminal charges. So it is in Christ's kingdom. And so it is this royal act is issued by Christ, carried out by His ambassadors, and observed throughout His kingdom. Well, secondly, it is a solemn act. Two things to note from our passage. The first is this. The solemn act is seen in that the one under such a censure is removed from the communion of the church. And so, this does not mean that such a one has no right to hear the preaching of God's Word. In fact, that's what they do need. If they're brought under this censure, they should be going to church to hear the Word of God. But it's important to see that they are removed from the fellowship within the church. They are not to enjoy the privileges of the church. They're not to shoot the breeze with members of the church. They're not to be treated as even a sinner outside of the church because they are a treasonable offender under the censure of Christ. That's why Paul says, listen, I have written, verse 11, unto you, not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator and so on. Earlier he says, it's not the fornicators of this world. You go to work in our day and there's a fornicator. Paul's not saying don't have you know, company lunch with that person if they're not a professed believer, if they're not under censure. He's saying if that one considers himself a brother and is so, if that one is under the censure and is so, you are duty-bound to distance yourselves from them. It is a most solemn thing. And the world is right to say, That's shameful. And we're right to say there's shame built into that. Somehow, over the past hundred years, we've thought that shaming someone is wrong. It's not wrong to shame someone for what is shameful. We don't go to our children who have used foul mouth and say, oh, it's okay, 
you know, that speech is just not that great. We say, what are you doing? You don't speak like that. There are some things that you speak about with dignity. You don't use that foul language. You don't speak that way. And there is inbuilt in that reproof, shame. There's a propriety in coming under the censure of God's Word and feeling shame. Excommunication, unblessed of God, is the harbinger, it's the precursor to the everlasting shame of hell. That's what's going on. God is, as it were, giving a dress rehearsal for damnation so that the person would see the agony, the overwhelming shame of being cast out of the good standing of Christ's church. Now we'll see that there's a gracious purpose in that. But in order to understand the gracious purpose, we need still to understand what's taking place. All unnecessary fellowship with such an one is to be utterly ended. You see that here. You can see it as well in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And there at verse 14, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, notice the language, that he may be ashamed. There is a purpose built into the censure of casting shame upon the person. And yet, what needs to be acknowledged is that this shaming of the person is not out of some bitterness built up in us and some personal vengeance now heaping with wicked, bitter glee upon them. But it is with an earnestness saying, you step in the way of hell. And you need to come sober to this reality. You're fleeing. You're running full speed into the dark abyss. You need to realize this. Christ is exposing you and He's telling you, this is where you're going. You're fleeing from Christ. This is why Paul will balance his word that we nonetheless treat them and speak with them as we shame them with tenderness. So think back to a parent. There are abusive parents. There are good parents who in various seasons overstep what they should say, how they should say it, and so on. But you think, a parent who catches his child doing something shameful, he treats that child solemnly, sobering the child to what's going on. And yet the parent, in the midst of administering that word, perhaps those consequences is doing so with an earnest desire to see the child repent. That's what's motivating the father. That's what's motivating the parents. And brethren, that's what should be motivating the church in this solemn act, which then starts to help us see how it is we go through this in the difficult things. Well, here's a person and they've been under censure of excommunication. They say, hey, do you want to hang out? What do we do? Well, we could blow up with them on the phone. We could blow up with them on the the email. Or we could say, listen, I earnestly would desire that, but the Lord Jesus Christ from whom you're fleeing says I can't. 
My earnest desire for you is that you would repent. If you want to get together to talk about that, let's do it. You say, well, that's too focused. That's too little. Let's get this clear in our minds. The worst sex offender in this nation, serial sex offender, is under less a censure from Christ than one who is under greater excommunication. That's the reality before us. There are different things taking place, of course. There are some things about what has been stated that are naturally more repulsive to us. And we know all the difficulties associated with it. But we need to see things as Christ would have us to see. The one who's not a brother, who's a fornicator, an idolater, a railer, a drunkard, an extortioner, I'm not saying you have to flee from them. But one who has professed the faith of Christ, who has been baptized into His covenant, who has been under the means of grace, and has now embraced a life of sin, that's the one that you should look upon as most egregious in the sight of God. That's not the teaching of some denomination or some era of history. That's the teaching of Christ's Word. That's Christ the King helping us to see things as they're to be seen. Within this solemn act of removing them from the fellowship of the church, you notice that Paul says that they are delivered unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. There are mysteries surrounding this expression, but it seems to be parallel to what Christ says, let him be as a heathen. Remember, think of that expression. Israel, as a covenant nation, had the light of God's Word. Israel had the fellowship of the saints. Israel had the means of grace, the ordinances, all of these privileges. The nations didn't have them. They were exposed to the stupidity and the foolishness and the rancorous wickedness of the nations. And who is it that rules the nations in that way? It's Satan. And what happens to them as they continue in all of these sins? They fade away. Drunkards have natural problems that happen to their systems. Fornicators contract diseases that waste their body away. Idolaters become consumed because they become like the thing they're worshiping, which is vain, empty, and fruitless. But there is something that is implied with Paul's words. Paul says to the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved. Here is not the issue of the sinful flesh versus the uh, righteous soul, but the body and soul. There is an exposing to Satan that wastes away the body. There is, as it were, the Lord pronouncing, saying, my providential care is being backed off of you. And you are going to be exposed to the hatred, the enmity, the uh, bitterness of Satan against his own. Keep this in your mind. Satan has no delight in any of his subjects. Not one. Not one ounce of it. The most profane, godless man, Satan doesn't look at him and say, that's my friend. Or I find pleasure in him. 
Satan despises every single subject of his kingdom and will gladly delight in his torment. And you know this by experience. Even as a Christian, you're tempted into a sin and it's painted with all the fair colors of beauty and attraction and benefit. And then you take the forbidden thing. And what happens? All of a sudden, your friend, Satan, who was leading you along the way, jumps on you and brings you unto great bitterness and emptiness. It's as the Scriptures regularly portray that sin brings forth death. And who's there coaching and coaxing and cultivating all of this? It's Satan and his kingdom. It's no mistake that when one is brought under lawful excommunication, that many times their bodies break. That should burden us. That should make it solemn in our sight. None of us at the excommunication of anyone should be standing there with a sense of lighthearted glee or saying, now you're going to get what's coming to you. If we have any grace at all, it will lower us and bring us to our knees continuously crying out, Oh God, as you bring them low, bring them again unto Christ. It is most solemn. But brethren, the third is this. It is a gracious act as well. How is it gracious? Well, Paul particularly highlights this when he says that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's not giving an automatic rule, excommunicated, they're brought low, then they'll be saved. But he's saying this is the means to employ. And if ever they shall be saved, when a scandalous sin is erupted, it will be in this way. They will be brought low. And so what we see is, all of the solemnity we've talked about, and all that challenges our own cultural norms today, and we say, that's difficult for us to hear. And we stand with the disciples and say, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? You know, this is difficult. How can we enact it? This is too contrary to the culture. But brethren, here is the wonder of the Lord's arrangement. The very solemnity of it all. The weightiness of it all. Is the very thing that the Lord orders unto the one's repentance. That their spirit should be saved. What happens when one comes under the weight of this? Well, they may become more boisterous in all of their cavils and objections and all of their words. In their soul, they feel the weight of it. It's like the atheist, right? The atheist is loud and boisterous and they say there's no God. And yet what happens? Something hits them and they say, oh no. You've heard of a missionary of old who had joined with an unbeliever and unbeknownst to him, this unbeliever who had led him to all manner of unbelief himself and caused him to reject various truths is in an inn. And this unbeliever is in anguish, screaming, crying out. And this man who had been influenced by him, not knowing it's that man, is in the room next door. And he's hearing the shoutings and the cryings and all of these petitionings going on as a despondent, hopeless man. And when he awakens in the morning, he goes to the innkeeper and says, you know, what came of the man? Oh, he died. 
Who was it? And the name that came off of the master's lips, the innkeeper's lips, was the man's friend who led him into all this sin, carelessly, casually, indifferently to God. And it's then that he realized, what a fool. What's the point? A bold sinner is only bold for a moment. And the moment passes. A bold sinner, courageous and stout-hearted and rhetorically flourishing all of his words against God and all of his mockery against Christians. Believe we need to realize this. He has a conscience still. It may be seared. It may be calloused over. But you know what happens when a callus is ripped off. The pain is immense. And brethren, here's what happens in the life of the impenitent. Only insofar as these things are enacted by God's Word and in accordance to His grace, whatever their outward speech, they can't escape the reach of God's hand to His conscience. They may speak more loudly, they may harangue, and they may indeed carry on. But going on is a work of conviction that they can't escape. They may turn to more drunkenness. They may turn to more licentious pleasures. But unescapable is the reach of God's hand. There's also another work. And though it is not specific to the text when it says that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, we should realize that such public and solemn censures has an influence upon others those who are in the church and witness these things, it changes them. It makes them to see this is a kingdom. I am under obligation to walk in accordance to the King's Word. And what I see taking place in this man or in this woman is but a forerunner of what shall happen to me if I fail to hold fast to Christ and walk in compromise with Him. And so it sobers and purifies the church. But brethren, with reference to the offender, it is the ongoing prayer that it would be the means to awaken. It is the last measure the church has to seek the reclaiming of the impenitent. There's no other means. We can't invent other things. We can't come up with alternate methods. This is the king's method for reclaiming those who have turned from Him. And there's nothing more that the church can do. Apart from having administered the censure to pray that the Royal One who administers these things in us and through us would own it in the life of the impenitent. Brethren, here is then as we close a very solemn truth for us to come under. We say it's weighty. I feel the weight of it. Brethren, you and I don't feel the half of the weight we should. It is heavy. It's heavier than we would admit because it is bearing the weight of Christ the King. It's His rod coming down upon the head of the offender. It's His sort of justice coming. And so it is heavy. And so it is a reproof to those who would ignore it. It's a reproof to those who would mock it. It's a reproof to those who would say, well, I guess something happened. 
Because when there is a center administered, though we don't see with the eyes of flesh, what we need to realize is Christ the King is executing His Word, His work, His ordinance. But brethren, above all else, what it should lead us to do is to pray for the one under the censure, for those who hear the censure, that ultimately God's name would be glorified, His church further purified, and the one who is under the censure redeemed. We come in a moment to the pronouncement of two censures. Brethren, this church has witnessed and is still in the midst of another censure over one. It's a good moment for us to consider how are our prayers for her? How diligently are we remembering that the King has administered this part of His kingdom? And whereas there is truth that we need to distance, there is also truth that we may reach out for the purpose of speaking of Christ. That we can appeal to them to remember the censure of Christ. That we can do so kindly, generously, without compromising. We don't meet in order to carry on about nonsense. And we say, but they won't want to meet. That's not your problem. Your concern is to see the administration of Christ's kingdom faithfully executed and lovingly executed. And so, brethren, may the Lord stir us up together to be faithful not only in the pronouncement of censures, not only in the administration in the immediate moment, but in the ongoing observance of them, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Would you stand with me briefly for prayer? Father in heaven, we hear your word and we must confess there's much that arises in our minds about particular questions. And though we have need of having some of those answered, we pray help us to come under what is plain and clear in your word. And bless us to be those who would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be sobered by what is heard, that we would be made earnest in prayer on behalf of those whom we know who are under the censure of greater excommunication. And Lord, may it so sober us that we ourselves would flee more nearly unto Christ, embracing Him freshly in faith. Bless now all that proceeds. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We come to a very solemn ordinance of excommunication. You'll be aware of the basic steps that have been taken. It's necessary for clarity and good order to recite some of them so that all is above reproach. In November of 2022, concerns were raised in regards to a marital breakdown perceived in the lives of both Mr. and Mrs. Samuel Ridley, Samuel and Abigail. This led to a number of informal and formal meetings, calls and efforts to assist and address them. And over time, though there were initial encouragements, they both grew uh, reluctant to continue meeting. And so 
the session was involved and over time they refused to meet and receive counsel and help from the session. Mrs. Ridley ultimately moved out of state contrary to Mr. Ridley's desire to work on the marriage and subsequently Mr. Ridley rejected pastoral counsel to repent of his sinful anger and failed to appear before the session to receive formal rebuke to that end. Furthermore, Mrs. Ridley's move away ex and expressed intention to have nothing to do with the elders of this church made it utterly impossible to work toward addressing the marital breakdown or spiritual needs of her soul. So after many attempts to address this, the session was left with no other course of action than to move toward formal citations for both to address the relevant matters. Mrs. Ridley failed to appear to no fewer than five cited meetings of session. Confirmation of her receiving the citation was received each occasion. And additionally, she failed to provide any feedback, response, or request for adjustments, though such were sought. Mr. Ridley charged her with marital abandonment. Her move and her unwillingness to clear her good name made it impossible for the church to assist in any way to remedy this matter. Her failure to reply appear in any way cooperate with the efforts of the session left the session with no other choice but to charge her with contumacy. Thus following her continued separation from her husband, her unwillingness to cooperate in any way with the session, and her contumacy evidenced by her own statements and her failure to appear or reply in any way to the three most recent citations, the session referred her case to presbytery in accordance with the teaching of the Bible and legislation of this church. Contumacy is the refusal to comply or obey Christ's authority given to the courts of his church and as such is a grievous sin which Christ himself indicates is worthy of greater excommunication. If he will not hear the church, then let him be as a heathen. Given the gravity of so great a matter, this session referred to the, this to Presbytery in its meeting of November 1st, 2023. Presbytery sustained the reference and resolved to try the case. Presbytery then ordered St. Louis session to enter on the process to intimate the censure to Mrs. Ridley and ordered Reverend Matul to proceed to three public admonitions. Similarly, Mr. Samuel Ridley failed to appear in no fewer than three-sided meetings of session to receive a formal rebuke for his sinful anger as evidenced by his own admission, the testimony of his wife, and his conduct as witnessed by the session during numerous meetings over several months. His failure to appear at these three meetings accompanied with his expressed intention never to appear to receive such a rebuke left the session with no other choice than to charge him likewise with contumacy. At the same meeting of November 1st, Presbytery likewise sustained the reference tried the case of Mr. Ridley. After deliberation, Presbytery ordered the St. Louis session to proceed similarly with him. In this congregation, those three admonitions were given over the course of three Sabbaths. The Presbytery then ordered the St. Louis session to proceed to the three public and solemn prayers, seeking the repentance of both Mr. and Mrs. Ridley. And these likewise have been offered up on separate Sabbaths. Throughout the efforts noted here, neither Mr. nor Mrs. Ridley has given any indication of repentance or interest in pursuing this. The session therefore reported these proceedings to Presbytery, which met on Tuesday, February 6th. And having reviewed the proceedings, the Presbytery did then order me to proceed to the pronouncement of the dreadful sentence of excommunication. 
So in accordance with biblical principle and our own practice preached on this ordinance this morning, I've now narrated the various steps of the process in order. And before proceeding, we must seek the Lord for His favor. Would you stand with me?